0: The What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the
1: ever-changing marketing and communications landscape.
0: Good afternoon. This is Aaron Stroh, CMO of W2O Group and host of the What to Know podcast show. I am here today in uh, sunny Santa Monica, California, and I am sitting with Tracy D'Annunzio, who is the founder and CEO of TradeZ. Uh, we're going to learn a lot more about Tradesy in a minute. I'm sitting here in their very elegant but startup-y office, and I mean <laughs> that as nothing but a compliment. It's it's a we'll very, it. very cool space on Second Street. Uh, welcome Tracy.
1: Thank you so much, Aaron.
0: So one of the things that I love to do with the folks that we're interviewing is I like to get to know a little bit about where did you come from, right? I think that I'm always amazed by the different stories people tell and how diverse those stories are. Uh, you in particular have a very unique story, I think, in the sense that uh, you didn't start off as a businesswoman, and uh, in fact, you actually started off as an artist, as a painter. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, what did you paint, and what sort of head you, headed you in that direction before you, you know, took the right hand turn and decided to go the uh, the startup route.
1: Sure. Um. So I was a painter. I that was I. We still are, but just don't have <clears throat> a lot of time for. It. Um, I don't think I've painted in probably seven years but now you know this company is is the art I do every day and I don't I don't miss painting because it feels um, just as creative and fulfilling and even more exciting to do this uh, than it did to have a career as an artist so i'm I'm happy um, even though I'm not making art in the traditional sense anymore. And when I was, it was just something that I did from the time I was very young and kind of had a natural knack for. Um, And I started off as a portrait artist. I trained in very traditional ateliers in New York City. I used to take the train on the weekends from the time I was 11 or 12 into Manhattan from our home on Long Island in the suburbs. Um, And I would take figure painting and drawing classes at the Art Students League. So I would take the train to Manhattan to, to paint and draw naked people. And um, I was really fascinated by, by people more than anything. Um, and so I liked capturing them. Although later in my career, in my 20s, I shifted from figurative work to more abstract work. And I think that was just part of the natural exploration of different ways to, to express yourself via the, the painting and drawing mediums.
0: So fascinating story. And fast forwarding a little bit up until uh, I think four-ish years ago before you, or as you were starting TradeZ, you had an interesting way of saving money and sort of raising money before you got into um, you know some of the larger venture capital firms, which we'll talk about in a second. But uh, if I heard correctly, I think you started taking advantage of this service called Airbnb and renting out your place. And Tell us a little bit about what that experience was like.
1: Yes. Airbnb was my first VC because VCs weren't interested in initially in funding an artist with no business experience. So while I learned... And, and taught myself about how to build this business in the early days when I was bootstrapping it. Um, I was spending a lot of late nights doing YouTube tutorials and, and reading about how to do everything from graphic design to SEO to um, some light coding. And I would fall asleep on my couch on top of the computer and I ended up sleeping most nights on the couch. So when I heard about this new thing called Airbnb, I thought, well, that's great. I could rent out my bedroom, use the earnings to fund the company and sleep on my couch, which I'm doing anyway. Um, So I started renting my bedroom on Airbnb and that was what funded the business. It was actually not four years ago. So in four years ago, we launched Tradesy. But for three years before that, I was working on a smaller, more specific version of Tradesy. It was just in the weddings category. And that was sort of the bootstrap phase where I used airbnb to fund it and prove our concept
0: see so in the spirit of transparency tracy and i were talking about this in our prep uh our friend jesse draper mutual friend you know set this up this morning usually i have lots of time to do the background research and so this is my fast research effort to, to get up to speed so thank you for the the, uh, winging it the connection we are winging it a little bit um I would like to rewind a little bit, though, and say, you know, how did you get this idea, and what was that moment where you said, I think I've got enough to put this into practice and actually build a business around this? And actually, maybe let's talk a little bit about, you started with the wedding space, but now you do it, I think, with clothing and uh, accessories. Um, It's really this concept of being able to, we talked about before, give people higher end experiences without having to pay full retail price, because guess what? people like my wife go out and buy really nice handbags or a dress or sweater. Um, eventually they may grow out of it, they don't want it anymore, or they just would like to get something else. So they need someone to be able to sell it, someone beyond a thrift shop or a consignment shop. So you're taking this to the e-commerce platform and probably putting all sorts of fancy algorithms behind it. But back to the original question, How did you know, what gave you this idea that this might be a great business idea?
1: Well, I was an artist um, and I had fancy taste on an unfancy budget when it came to fashion and shopping. Um, So throughout my 20s, I got pretty good at scouring consignment stores for really good deals on very high-end luxury designer fashion. Um, And then also conversely at selling those items either through consignment stores or on eBay when I was done with them and wanted something new. Um, And I saw right around 2009, right after the financial crisis, that I wasn't alone, that pretty much every woman I knew uh, felt like she had an overflowing closet but nothing to wear, would have loved a way to monetize her wardrobe, the things that she was no longer wearing, but that this thing that I was doing with the consignment stores was too time consuming and complex for most women. So I would ask my friends, why don't you sell that thing you're no longer wearing or using, and why don't you go buy a used one? And they would say, well, gosh, I just, it's so complicated. I don't know if I have time, I don't know if I can trust that the things I buy secondhand are authentic, Um, I'm not sure what the value should be, and I thought, well, gosh, there's this internet now. We could probably solve for this. Thank you, Al Gore. (laughs) Thank you very much, Al Gore, for that and many other things. Um, And so I had the idea to create a true peer-to-peer platform that would facilitate collaborative consumption among women, where we could buy and sell anything from our closets. And it had a little bit of a... um, the, the initial concept wasn't as fleshed out as Tradesy is today. We do have algorithms to guarantee authenticity and to match buyers and sellers with the right product and pricing. But at the time, the concept was really about liberating women from a system in which we're often marketed to, especially within the fashion and beauty categories, in ways that are divisive in ways that say you've got to spend just a little bit more and then you can look just a little bit better. And I always thought, well gosh, if if other women look better and feel better about themselves, that for me feels like a plus. I don't want to be competing with other women. I want to be collaborating with them. And anyone who's had a good friend or a sister knows that when you when you Collaborate by sharing closets, you know, everyone's wardrobe gets bigger, everyone's life gets better, everyone looks and feels better. So I thought really even more than bringing a peer-to-peer collaborative consumption platform to life, that was sort of the the execution level thing that needed to be done in order to achieve the vision. And the vision was really to unite women in a collaborative consumption uh, concept to create sort of an alternative economy in which we could create a win, like have a win-win way of engaging with commerce. So um, that, along with the idea that fast fashion and disposable fashion had become really dominant, and a lot of us were buying sort of the junk food equivalent of clothing, stuff that you wear once, and it, you know, kind of looks looks like it should taste good but it doesn't and then it it wasn't it was empty calories so um i wanted to support women in moving away from buying toxic uh poorly made cheap apparel that doesn't make us look and feel good and investing into things that are created a little bit more
0: sustainably so you said something that i really liked and i think it's uh emblematic of a conversation i've been having with a bunch of people in the industry And so one of the reasons I met you, as I mentioned, was through Jesse Draper. Jesse runs Halogen Ventures. They invest in women-led and founded companies. I think she's not one of your investors. We'll talk about that in a second. But it is this idea of not empowering women in leadership roles for the sake of doesn't it feel good or we should. But lo and behold, there's actually an economic benefit and diversity. I think we've heard a lot about this, whether it's male, female, sexual orientation, background, is a healthy thing. And one of the things you touched on, which I think a lot of people wouldn't have thought of, which is instead of the competition, how can I collaborate with, how can I make this a positive experience and let everyone win? So let's fast forward that to, you have a couple of pretty well-known, very powerful investors, right? And I think this is where I know in talking to a lot of women um, who have gone down the VC route or the, the entrepreneurial route, that it's sometimes these... Skills and these things that they know are that are probably more inherently feminine. Although there are men that can exhibit these That investors have a hard time right because women are almost too honest about it And they're too pragmatic or they they throw things out there like let's collaborate versus compete So I think we talked about um, Kleiner Perkins John Doerr was one of the investors Um, David borderman uh, bonderman, sorry, Um, you know their family office invested. How did you convince these very well known, very powerful, invested in all the the big tech firms to say you gotta give this a shot. Like this is actually something that you're gonna really care about, even though, you know, I'm coming at this from maybe a slightly different angle than, you know, your maybe a male counterpart might. That was a long question. I apologize for that. Hopefully you followed.
1: Yeah, I think I mean I think it's important to look at the data, and the data says that you know about 3% of all venture capital dollars are going to female founder CEOs um, or female te- teams that are led by women. So statistically we know that women are underrepresented, underfunded in, in tech. That said, um, the cohort of investors who have invested in Tradesy, and by way of investing in Tradesy have invested in me, are among the most egalitarian, I believe, in, in the industry. So I can certainly tell you war stories about my time on the fundraising trail and ways in which investors did not receive our pitch well that seem to be tightly correlated to some kind of sexism. Um, however, the investors who have invested, so John Doerr and Kleiner Perkins, um, you know, I don't know that this is as widely known as it maybe should be, but they have more female representation at Kleiner Perkins and have for the many years we've been working with them than any other major blue chip fund. Um, So when we pitched Kleiner Perkins, we were brought in by a female partner and it was maybe 40% women in the room. So I didn't feel any kind of, um, uh, challenge in communicating to them. It was very clear that I was a woman representing a business that was for women, and therefore would have some expertise in in what this customer wants because I am her. Um, the same thing goes for our other investors. You know, Richard Branson is an investor. I don't think he cares whether I'm a woman or a man. He cares. That I delivered a great pitch when I met him, um, Tim Ferriss, you know David Bonderman by way of his family office. So the people at his family office, they're largely men, more men than women, have invested in us. Um, but those men who have are are wonderful. So I personally have had a lot of positive experiences, but I I fight very hard for women in technology because I know that that's not the norm and that I've been really fortunate.
0: Well, I like your message, right? Because I think this is where we do need to, with whatever sort of diversity we're looking at, it's who's got a great idea. Doesn't matter where they come from, what they look like, any of that. If they've got a great idea, good experience, and you would put it into practice, clearly you were getting the right revenue numbers, you had the right EBITDA. You know, they were you, they were like, doesn't matter what you look like. I'm going to give you money because I like your idea and you seem to be good at executing it.
1: Well, yes, and also I think we have to be very honest. Like I'm a I'm, I'm a white woman who is fairly um, easy to digest as a representative of my company. I think that where you often see women and, and people in general feeling bias has to do with um, women of color and people of orientations or backgrounds that are just less familiar to those people who end up working in venture capital. So... I think for for me personally, um, I don't dwell on, you know, having felt at all discriminated against, but I certainly see that there is discrimination and it's largely against um, women who don't look like me, uh, women of color. And so that's an important area, I think, for me and for everyone to focus on increasing diversity.
0: So that's a good point. Do you mind if I ask, like, how do we fix that? It is a huge problem, and I've heard some solutions, but I'd love to know from someone that's, you know, walked in the shoes of, you're not the average bear, even though you're right, you're a white woman, and you do represent your what you're selling well, especially because you're selling to you, as you so eloquently put it. How do we change this? How do we make this not the case anymore, where we are? there is that unconscious bias or maybe conscious bias against folks that don't look like us when we're investing, when we're, you know, starting businesses or even hiring people.
1: I think there are two things. Um, The first is just representation at the table of the decision makers, right? So until there are more people of color, more women of color and more minorities in general across the board, in venture capital, making the investment decisions, I don't think we'll see the, the amount of change that, that we should see. Um, the other thing that that is challenging and somewhat related is that when you start off as an entrepreneur and you want to find investors, most of their websites say, if you'd like to meet us, get a warm intro. Well, I know for me, I didn't I didn't come from a background where I knew anyone who could introduce me to a venture capitalist. Um, and and certainly that's the case for a lot of people who have promising ideas and the skills and the determination to execute is that they just don't have a warm intro if they're not part of those circles. So I think that creating process in the venture world to allow more entrepreneurs to, to kind of get their ideas through without that network bias would be really, really useful. Um, even more than that, I just think it's going to happen no matter what, because inevitably there are huge markets of people who want the kinds of products and services that are being produced by entrepreneurs of color. So um, people who want to make money are going to have to take notice.
0: Well, that's good advice. And, you know, we still have a long way to go, but it's going to start somewhere, right? So um, shifting gears a little bit, because I want to be mindful of your time. I know we screwed squeeze this in today. Um, I like to find out a little bit from our guests, you know, who's inspiring or influencing them. And that can come in a number of forms. It could be someone in your life that a boss, a friend, an uncle, a or a book author, right? And so one of the other things I like to ask is, is there a book you read as the CEO of a, you know, very uh, quick growing company and having to fill up a lot of your hours, I'm sure, with uh, very business oriented things Tell us a little bit about, you know, who's inspiring you, whether it's a, you know, a book, a book author or someone in your life that's helped you get to where you are today.
1: Mm. Well, um, I would say that. All, all of our investors have become our investors because they are people who I was inspired by or wanted to learn from and I sought them out. So um, one example that comes to mind just because I chatted with him the other night is Tim Ferriss, who's excellent at sort of being a human, uh, including all of the things about being a human that have to do with uh, working more efficiently and uh, driving more towards successful outcomes in your life but not solely restrained to that. he's also very good at sort of knowing how to live a balanced life which I also respect and admire. Um, I don't read a lot of business books. Um, I prefer to read history books. And philosophy books. Those
0: may actually be better inspirations than business books. For
1: me, they are. For me, um, you know, it's certainly I don't know all the all the rules and techniques of being a great manager or leader and, and there are times I wish I had more of those skills, but rather than look for like a direct sort of how to lead a company, I like to look at patterns of the way that people have organized and disorganized in throughout history. Um, to learn more on like a macro scale, what I think is effective and sustainable versus destructive and unsustainable, and then apply that. By
0: the way, Every week when we do these podcasts, the marketing team that edits these and then puts together the social posts always send me several choices for quotes and titles. And I have to tell you, you're one of the first people where as I'm going through, it's like, yep, that would be a great quote. That would be a great quote. So thank you for (laughs) throwing out nice little bits and a funny little aside. So Hugh Forrest, who runs South by Southwest Interactive, was one of my guests he said there was one time he broke his rule of letting someone, there's a very rigorous process to get into the speaking circuit there. You have to apply through the panel, blah, 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 blah. He said there was one person who lobbied him a number of years ago, said, I've got this book, I want to release it. You know, Hugh thought about it. This guy really came on strong. This guy was Tim Ferriss. So (laughs) Tim Ferriss has come full circle in the the podcast network here. Um, Final question. And this is a fun one, or hopefully it's a fun one. So I like to just sort of get to know the personal side a little bit of people, and I like to do that through music. Music is very personal to me. So one of the questions I always love to ask our guests is if you're stuck on a desert island and there's one album that you could listen to forever, um, not maybe your favorite album, but one that, you know, and I, I get lots of interesting answers on this. I would love to know which album and why.
1: Uh, I'm a, like, grunge kid at heart, it would have to be Pearl Jam, what was it called? 11 or 10. What? Yeah. 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 Versus there are
0: a couple of them, but 10, I think is probably the one you're the talking one, about. The one,
1: the, the original, the, with, with even flow and alive and all of the like nineties, I'm a nineties baby. So if I had one, it would be very hard to choose, but it would be, it would be Pearl Jam. And I would just like relive Lollapalooza <laughs> over and over again.
0: So it's funny. I, I'm a big grunge fan myself. It's been sort of a tough, you know, last few years with Chris Cornell recently. And, you know, Eddie Vedder. So let's put a, you know, duck or a, a bubble wrap around Eddie Vedder and don't let anything happen. But, you know, Alison Chains and certainly Kurt Cobain. So um, I am a big sucker for grunge music. And I think that is. I remember listening to that album when I was in grad school and I was like, wow, this band does not sound like anyone I've ever heard before. So.
1: Yeah, I remember seeing. A video on something called 120 minutes it was Remember hosted that. by Ricky Rackman yep, yep. and I also had the same thought and then they just played the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and they did a very true to the original version of alive but for me it was just remarkable because you know it's 20 years later or something and you could hear the maturity in in Eddie Vedder's voice and and the kind of the years that had passed while he also did a very faithful to the original version it was I thought it was really moving and spectacular.
0: Well, it's a great way to end. And so this is Aaron Strout, CMO of W Two O Group, host of the What to Know podcast. I've had the pleasure today of speaking with Tracy DeNunzio, who is the founder and CEO of Tradesy. Um, thank you so much for you know squeezing this in and for allowing us to do this in your office, Tracy. It was lots of fun. Thank you. Thank you. want more episodes of the what to know podcast we post a new episode every thursday check them out on itunes the podcast app and the podcast page at w2ogroup.com backslash what to know